uh, have been in a series uh, called The Good Life and uh, taking a look at Jesus's answer to a question that every single one of us in the room, every single human being asks. And that question that every single human being asks is, what is the good life? And the follow-up question is, well, how do I get it? And we've talked about this over the last six weeks uh, and, and about how the fact that, that every politician and every ideology and every religion, in fact, every company in America has their version of the good life. And if you buy their product, if you vote for them, that's how you get it. And I don't know about you, but I've lived long enough to know that that's actually not true. It's a lie. Well, so anybody else, anybody else, you know, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I thought it was all going to work out a certain way. Nah, it didn't really. But Jesus shows up, and, uh, and he shows up, and in the Beatitudes, or it's part of a, a longer kind of sermon or t- series of teachings that Jesus does for his disciples, he instructs his disciples, those who follow Jesus, the answer to the question, what is the good life? And the good life, uh, you know, according to Jesus, or this beatitude that we've been looking at, these beatitudes, the beatitudes are kind of the summary of the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, we're going to learn today as we're going to look at a couple of different passages through the Sermon on the Mount that, that Jesus introduces a theme and then he carries that theme and touches on it through the rest of the sermon or the rest of this series of teachings. But Jesus shows up. And this be- these Beatitudes are the summary of this greater sermon and, uh, and they kind of the starting point for all of these thoughts that he wants his followers, disciples of Jesus, he wants us to learn and understand. Now, the other thing that we've learned is that, you know, so we've learned, number one, that this is Jesus' answer to what is the good life. The other thing that we've learned is that it's pretty terrifying. Like, really? Like, like you want me to, like, be poor in spirit? You know, I would prefer to be rich and happy. You want me to mourn? I live in America. Pursuit of happiness, baby. Right? And so we recognize that if you read them on the surface, they can be pretty terrifying. But I'm hoping that this series has helped you understand a little bit more clearly what it is that Jesus is actually teaching. That there's some depth and richness to what he's wanting us to understand. And and I, I showed this chart two weeks ago, and I think it was worth showing again. Because I want us to understand that Jesus is a master communicator. And the way he laid out the Beatitudes was he was trying to help us understand that you've got to empty yourself of some things so that you can be filled with something or have a new appetite, as it were. And when you have a new appetite, you end up living life a different way. And so on the the front side of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, poor in spirit, you bring nothing to the table. You're You're spiritually destitute. You're at the mercy of another. And this is what Jesus teaches us, right? Then he says, man, you ought to be those that mourn over your sin. We ought to understand that sin is relational. It grieves the heart of God. It breaks our relationship with God and with one another. And he goes on and then he says, listen, you live in a world that's going to treat you harshly, but you ought to be meek and live in this way where you're emptied of yourself. It's not about you. It's about God being at the center. And so we empty ourselves so that, and this is the brilliance of Jesus, so that we can hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, now what righteousness means here is not kind of like some moral checklist that you've got to work through, right? What, What righteousness is a relational term, and what literally it means is that we are in right relationship with God, and we're in right relationship with one another. And so he wants that to be the hunger of our heart. He wants that to be the appetite that we strive after and drive for and we're motivated by that, man, I want to hunger and thirst after right relationship with God and right relationship with others. 
Now, the last two weeks and this third week, what we're doing is we're living out, if, if you're a person that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, then there's evidence of that in your life. Remember back in week one, I said that Christianity has an identity crisis problem <laughs> because we've ended up kind of trans, or communicating that Christianity is about a set of beliefs. But actually, Jesus teaches us that it's be, uh, believing the right things, but then it's putting those things actually into practice. And Jesus said, if you're hungering and thirsting after right relationship with me and one another, the evidence of that is that you'll be merciful. The evidence of that is that you'll be pure in heart, that you'll have the right motivations. Are we going to make mistakes? Are we going to fall short? Of course we are. We're human beings, right? But we're pure in heart. I'm going to pursue the right things. I'm going to bring the bad things out into the light. I'm going to expose those things because that's evidence of, of the hunger and thirst that's going on in our hearts. Well, the third thing that Jesus said is that as the one that we're going to address today, which is found in, I think it's Matthew 5, 12, where it says that the blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Now, question for you this morning. How many of you, now you're in church, okay? So you gotta be honest. You can't lie in church. How many of you this morning had a fight with your spouse, significant other, part, like how many of you had a fight on the way to church this morning in the car? A few of us, I appreciate the honesty. How many of the rest of you are probably lying if you're married? Uh, <laughs> kidding, kidding. How many of you had some conflict this week in your home with your siblings, with your kids, at work, right? Babe, you're not supposed to put your hand up. It's just me and you living at home now. We're supposed to have the perfect marriage, right? <clears throat> honesty from my wife, I tell you. Sheesh. Conflict is a natural part of life, isn't it? I mean, I think we're seeing a whole lot of conflict, you know, between nations and families and marriages and uh, conflict and political and social, racial, religious, right? And the NFL season hasn't even started yet. But all of us, if you're a human being, you have experienced conflict. You've experienced a good old fight, right? And, and we recognize because we're human and because we're broken, because of sin that, that uh, operates in the world and in the heart of, in our lives and in the world in which we live, there's going to be conflict, which means there's lots of opportunity for peacemaking, right? And so this is what Jesus talks about. Now, my wife and I, we have figured out the source of conflict after 27 years, almost 27 years of marriage, we have figured out the source of conflict in our marriage. It's me. We figured that out together. More Jenny than me, but you know, and we'll probably have some conflict about that later. But I was, uh, I was, I was, I was remembering uh, uh, one of our first fights. It was early on in our marriage, and uh, uh, I, it, was, it was that classic, you know, kind of married and just married, and you know, I want to go hang out with the guys. Babe, did you mind if you just hang out with the guys, you know? kind of miss hanging out with the guys, you know? And Jenny's like, honey, I really want to be with you. I mean, we've got to cut the cake and throw the bouquet and do all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but one of, my, one of my, in fact, the best man of my wedding, uh, he got married many years after Jenny and I got married. And they've been married probably about 15 years. And he, was, uh, he tells the story when he was, uh, young, he was just married. And he's a, he was a pastor at a church. And he was preaching that particular weekend. And I know none of you have ever experienced this. And uh, any of the husbands especially have never experienced this in this room. But um, he's out in the car waiting for his wife. And she's, you know, 
got a few things she got to take care of, you know. So he's, uh, his name, her name's Melissa. So Mike's in the car. Melissa's getting ready. Finally, uh, Mike does what every young, dumb husband does and lays on the horn. All right? If you're just married or thinking about married, don't do that, okay? Anyway, he lays on the horn. Finally, she comes out, you know. And, um, and, he, and then he figures, look, to add insult to injury, I'm going to correct her. Listen, I'm the man of God. I've got to preach a message, you know. We're not running late to church, you know. To which she responded by taking the bowl of cereal that she had just brought into the car and dumping it all over him. Uh, Fortunately, that didn't happen to me today. So um, (laughs) only because Jenny and I drive separate cars, uh, which is a great solution to conflict, by the way. (laughs) But conflict is inevitable, isn't it? You've experienced it today. You've experienced it this week. You're going to experience it tomorrow. Like it just is a natural reality of the world in which we live because things are broken and because of sin, there is conflict. But, but what we recognize is that we need Jesus' vision for peace because you recognize that God is a God of peace. In fact, there are some 400 references in the Bible to the God, to God being a God of peace or caring about peace. And I love this verse in Romans chapter 16, 20. It says this, the God of peace will come with a warm blanket. And no, no, this is what it says. I love this. Look what it says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Isn't <laughs> that awesome? Is that just me? I just, I just thought that was really kind of cool. He's the God of peace, but he's going to crush the enemy, right? But he's a God of peace. It says in, in Hebrews 13 that how, uh, now may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. He's a God of peace, and he wants to equip you with the tools necessary for you to be a peacemaker. We understand one of the titles of Jesus is that he is the Prince of Peace. He comes to give us peace. He actually tells us to be anxious for nothing, but the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind. The Holy Spirit is referenced as as the spirit of peace that Jesus sends to us after he ascends into heaven. And so we recognize that God is a God of peace. God is all about peace. But what is God's definition of peace? Because if we're not careful, what we can oftentimes do is plug in an earthly or, or uh, uh, some sort of a secular version of peace into that spot when we think that God is a God of peace. And what we can end up with is some sort of hippie version of peace or some sort of a thin definition of peace, something that isn't that deep, isn't that, isn't that robust. It's like, let's just glaze over the conflict that might happen and share a Coke together. It's going to be okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being the Prince of Peace. In fact, it's a word that we've actually used uh, around here to describe what God created when he originally created the world. It's this Hebrew word, shalom, and it represented this beautiful concept of everything being as it was meant to be. All of life was flourishing. You ever had a moment like that? You know, the sun is setting, the kids are in bed, right? You know, it's like, it's just perfect for at least a split second and then the kid gets out of bed and wants you to read them a story or something, right? Like, like this Jesus is talking about this shalom, that things will be as they're meant to be. And so this is God's definition of peace. And we recognize that because of the fall and because of sin, that all of that has gotten disrupted. But God's desire hasn't changed. God wants to lead us to a place of shalom where everything will be as it was meant to be. But not only does God want to lead you and I there, he wants you and I to participate in it with him. Because we ought to love and pursue the things that God loves. 
Look what, look what it says in Matthew chapter 5. Now remember, Matthew 5, 9, sorry, is the verse that we're looking at today, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And what Jesus is saying here is that, that in fact, that, that sons of God, that's a Hebrew idiom for family resemblance. What, what Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand is not that when you become a peacemaker, then you become a son of God. So first I have to become a peacemaker and then God will adopt me into his family and accept me and forgive me and all the rest of it. No, no, no. That's not what Jesus is saying because there's all of this, these verses that says, no, you're adopted into the family of God because of the work of Jesus. You're a son and daughter of Jesus Christ because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But what he's saying in this verse is that if you are a follower of Jesus then you will love the things that Jesus loves and you will endeavor to pursue those things in your existence, in your relationships, and in your life. You resemble your Father in heaven who is the God of peace. So we too as his children ought to be those who make peace. In fact, Jesus, a little bit later, in the same chapter, remember I told you that he introduces a thought and then he comes back to this thought. So he introduces this thought, you're gonna be a peacemaker, and then he says this in verse 43 of chapter 5 of Matthew. He says, you've heard, it, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Ever been there? It's really easy to love our neighbor, right? Love people that are like us. But the person that's offended you, the person that like, like has you know, kind of crossed you or done something to you, man, that person's not so easy to love, right? And under the law, it's like, that's what it says. Great, I like the law. But then he goes on, he says, and this is because Jesus supersedes the law. Jesus raises the bar for us. And he says this, but I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. And so Jesus is reinforcing just a few verses later in the same chapter, he's reinforcing this idea that you've got to be like your heavenly father and your heavenly father was a God of, he's the God of peace and he wants you to be a peacemaker. So what does it mean then to be a peacemaker? If peace is this idea of shalom, like the way things ought to be, the way things God designed them to be, what does it mean for you and I to be peacemakers? Well, quite simply, it means this. We are those who promote God's peace, shalom, God's heart, God's desire. And we're not those who just believe an idea as we've been talking about and what the Beatitudes teach us. We're those who actually put this into practice. And that's where the hard work of being a Christian comes in. That there's actually work, there's actually responsibility on your and my part to follow through with what Jesus teaches us. It's not just, I believe it. No, I gotta put this stuff actually into practice. And that's where, you ever had one of those ideas where it's just like, that just sounds like a great idea until you actually go and do it. Like Kentucky Fried Chicken. Anybody ever been there? Like you see an ad for Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't know what it is. It's like, man, that just sounds so good. And then you go and buy it and you suffer for three days. Like that was a really good idea that didn't turn out to be a good idea. And sometimes we do the th same thing with the Bible. We read the Bible and we go, yeah, God's a peacemaker. Yeah, I'm gonna be a peacemaker. Hey, what about that person that's offended you or you have some conflict right now? Great idea, but that's all it's gonna be, an idea, right? God actually calls us not just to be believers, but be doers of his word. And so we have a choice, right? This idea that, that peacemaking 
can be a good idea, but how do you respond? Now, most human beings respond in one of two ways. And you may have heard these terms, fight or flight. I realized when I did fight that I have to do some sort of motion for flight. I feel weird right now. Anyway, it's okay. It's okay. Stay with me. But that's how we tend to, isn't it? We, we, we tend to go into these situations where there might be conflict and we tend to fight or flight. We tend to go on the attack or we tend to avoid. And that's human nature because we don't like, most of us don't like conflict. Now, some of you do love conflict and we need to pray for you because that's the other side of that, right? But most of us fight, flight, attack, avoid. And, and the, the Bible actually teaches us, in fact, there's a verse found in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, and, uh, and it's, man, sometimes I love the word of God, and sometimes I just wish the word of God wouldn't say what the word of God says. Anybody ever been there? And this is what it says. Look at it. Look, it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it is possible. Okay, so if it is possible, which means that it might not always be possible that you might have done what you needed to do. You may have dealt with whatever's going on in your heart, and we're gonna talk about that in a minute. You might have even tried to reach out and respond, but the other person is holding you at distance. There might have been a situation where, man, it's just dangerous for you to actually try to make peace with another person. And this is why I love the Bible, but because the Bible's specific. I believe that every word is inspired, that every word has meaning and significance to it. So if it's possible... And then he says this, and this is why I just, oh man, God, couldn't you have said it another way? He says this, as far as it depends on the other person that offended you. Now, isn't that how we tend to operate, isn't it? But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, as much as it depends on you, I want you to live at peace with everyone. So if it's possible, it's not always going to be possible. But if it is, and as much as it depends on you, I want you to do what you need to do to be at peace with everybody around you. And so what we recognize is that where we can go on the attack or where we can fight, right, we can kind of uh, peace break, you know, and there's peace breaking, peace faking, and peacemaking. And I love this chart that uh, Ken Sandy has in his book called Peacemaking because we recognize that there are different responses when it comes to conflict. That we can take the escape response, right? And some of those are really, really extreme. And then we can go over to the other extreme uh, where there's the attack responses. But Jesus wants us not to be peace fakers or peace breakers. He asks us and instructs us to be peacemakers. As much as it depends on you, I want you to be a peacemaker. Now, before you can kind of understand, well, how are we, uh, how are we supposed to be a peacemaker? I think we need to understand a little bit about conflict. You see, conflict is often misunderstood. I don't know uh, about you, and yet I do know about you because you're a human being just like me, and I have kids. And if you have kids, it plays out this way. He said, she said, right? You know how that works? Like they have an argument, they have a conflict, and you as a parent go in to try and kind of settle. You know, you're trying to be a peacemaker, right? And the two kids, what do they do? They point at the other person. And, and so often we misunderstand conflict because we think that conflict came from somewhere else. And what we misunderstand is that conflict actually comes from inside of us. 
In fact, look what, look what James said in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Okay, here we go. What causes fights and quarrels among you? My spouse. That coworker, if they would just take a shower at least once a week, that would really help. Right? No, no, no. That's not what it says. What causes fights and quarrels amongst you? Don't you know that, that it comes from your desires that battle within you? Wait, are you telling me that conflict actually comes from inside of me? And yet, so often when you and I are in the midst of a conflict, what do we do? We point the finger at the other person. If they just hadn't have, and if they had, right? And so often we point the other direction when what the Bible tells us is to look inside of yourself. He goes on, he says, you desire but don't have, so you kill. You covet and you do not get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. And what Jesus is trying to help us understand, or what James is right, who's the writer here, uh, and God's trying to help us understand through this, is that the cause of conflict is unmet desires in your heart. Not the other person, in your heart. Now, I happen to have here Mr. and Mrs. Mason Jar. And as you can tell, Mr. Mason, he's a bit of a hipster, a little bit like Scotty Vischer. He's got that handlebar, handlebar mustache. Scotty doesn't have the glasses, so he's, this guy's a little bit more hipster. But you know how this works, don't you? You're in marriage, right? Or you're in a relationship or, you know, maybe it's a coworker or whatever the case might be. And there's a bump that happens. In fact, maybe you guys were just kind of happily driving and somebody says something and all of a sudden there's a little bump. Ooh. And then what happens? Did you see what just, you know what? Pink beads just came out of you, right? And you point to the other person, don't you? I see some of the husbands and wives always kind of, they're nudging each other right now, you know? It's like, yeah. Like, you know, is, are there any pink beaks coming out? Any blue beaks coming out, right? The point is simply this, right? Is that what happens when there's conflict, what happens when we bump one another is something comes out of us, but what we have a tendency to do is look at what comes out of the other person. Their words, their attitude, their actions. And what James is actually telling us is, don't you know that where the conflict and the quarrels come from? It's what's inside of you. Doug's going to kill me. I have made a huge mess. Hopefully I don't slip on those beads. But the point that I'm simply trying to make is that where, where does conflict start? The evolution of conflict starts with your desires. But the, and, and once again, there's desires that are just wrong, inherently wrong, right? Like vengeance and lust and greed, right? But there's desires that you have that are not inherently wrong, man. I just want some peace of mind. I just want my kids to love me. I want them to say thank you, right? Like those, there's nothing wrong with those desires. But when those desires are not met, there's a choice that takes place in our life, isn't there? And we can either trust God and say, okay, didn't happen. I'm gonna pray for that person. I'm gonna love that person. I'm gonna trust God to fulfill whatever that thing is. Or we can go the other route, which is what we oftentimes do. We take it into our own control. And what happens is when those desires go deeper and deeper and deeper inside of us, they become demands. 
And so we move from I desire to I demand, right? When another person fails to meet your desires, lives up to your expectations, what you tend to do is that we tend to criticize, we tend to condemn them, right? In fact, James in chapter three addresses this issue. He says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic, And so what James is saying in this letter is he's saying, hey, you got bumped. You had desires and expectations. That other person didn't meet them. But now all of a sudden, if they don't meet them, your deep sense of fulfillment and satisfaction is going to be rocked. And in that sense, what we do, and you know this because you've done this, I've done this, is that what happens is we start to judge their motives, don't we? Right? Oh, if you loved me, you would do this for me, right? Ever been there? Right? And, and sometimes we don't say those things, but we place expectations on other people that start as desires but become demands that if they don't do this, I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm not going to be fulfilled. And what inevitably ends up happening is that we start judging the other person. And sinful judging often speculates over another person's motives. Have you ever done that? You ever been like, I just know that they woke up this morning and the first thing that they did was they were gonna to try to figure out how to annoy me. And that's why they ended up doing that, right? Like, like, it's like we, we drive ourselves crazy thinking and assuming another person's motive without actually understanding. So what happens with conflict is that I desire, this desire becomes something so deep in me that if you don't do it and fulfill it, it it's this demand. And then when you don't satisfy that, then I'm gonna judge you. I'm gonna judge your motives. And you know what the last step in the evolution of conflict is? I punish you. Have you ever been punished? Or maybe you've been the one to give, dole out the punishment, right? Because when, when an idol, and that's really what that is, because an idol is when you need to find satisfaction in something or someone other than God. And so if that person doesn't fulfill that desire, you're not gonna be satisfied. It becomes an idol in our lives. And what an idol always needs someone to pay, doesn't it? There always needs to be a sacrifice. And so what we end up doing is I desire, I demand, I judge, and then finally I punish. I punish by giving the cold shoulder. I punish by hurtful words. I punish by trying to hurt them, you know. Now, of course, we never admit to that stuff, right? But this is how conflict oftentimes evolves between human beings. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to become angry and use hurtful words and withhold affection and have negativity towards that person I want you to actually be a peacemaker. And so how is it then, Jesus, that I'm supposed to become a peacemaker? And I think there's three very simple things that we could easily put into practice as followers of Jesus. And the other thing that I love about the Bible is that not only does Jesus say, hey, I want you to put this into practice. He says, I've given you my Holy Spirit that actually gives you the grace and the power and the ability to actually do these things. But as human beings and followers of Jesus, we got to stop and say, man, I'm not going to live that way. I'm going to live in the way of Jesus. I'm going to follow his example. I'm going to resemble my father who is the God of peace by being a peacemaker. So how do we do it? Well, the first thing I think is this. Number one, we have to accept the peace that Jesus offers us. You see, what we recognize about God is God doesn't fake peace. 
See, when Adam and Eve sinned, and and in them all of the seeds of all humanity sinned, it says that sin entered the whole world. Jeff used that verse out of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what happened in that moment is that that Jesus, who created Shalom, or God who created Shalom, right, everything was as it was meant to be. When sin entered, it infected everything, and most especially our relationship with him. We were designed to be dependent upon him. Every good gift would come from our heavenly father. Everything that we could ever need to be flourishing and thriving in life is founding Jesus. And so when that happened, that fracture happened, there was a rebellion that took place. We shook our fist at God. We turned our back. We became judge and jury over God when in fact God had every right to be judge and jury over us. And when he looked at a sinful humanity, he said, what you actually deserve is death, separation from me forever. And Jesus didn't go on, or God didn't go on the attack going after us, but Jesus, our God, didn't also wink at sin. He didn't go, oh, it's okay. I'll just, you know, no problem. It's all good. No, no, no. It was a violation of relationship. It fractured the relationship between us and God and us and one another. And God sends his son not to be a peace faker, not to be a peace breaker, but to be the peacemaker. And so Jesus is the one who offers us peace. In fact, this is what it actually says in Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him And it's by his wounds that we're healed. And and the prophet Isaiah is prophesying, he's forecasting, he's talking about a future event, which was the rescuer, Jesus, the Savior would come and he would die and you're in my place so that we could be at peace with God. So that that which separated us, that which fractured our relationship, remember those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, you can't hunger and thirst after righteousness in your own strength because you're spiritually bankrupt. But Jesus comes and fills that gap as the peacemaker so that relationship can be restored. I love how Thomas Merton says it. He says it this way, we are not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. And all of our efforts in our own strength to be peacemakers will fall woefully short because the motives of our heart haven't been transformed by the redeeming work of Jesus on that heart. So the starting point for being a peacemaker is to accept the peace that Jesus offers us through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And this is what I love. It's not like just some past events. It says that he is the prince of peace that gives you peace. Be anxious for nothing, but the peace of God that passes all understanding. So even that conflict, even that fight, even that disagreement, something even maybe more serious than all of that, Jesus is right there with peace in the midst of that storm. And just like he spoke to the storm and said, peace, be still. Can I tell you, there are things that only God can do There are circumstances that you maybe are facing right now where you're feeling this kind of conflict, this headbutting of one another, metaphorically, not actually, right? And, And there's this conflict that might be going on in a relationship that you have, and it's only Jesus that can give you the peace that ultimately will turn that from conflict into peace. So it starts with accepting, not once, not twice, but every day, Lord, I need your peace. You're the prince of peace. You give me peace. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to try to figure this out in my own strength. My starting point is you. I need the peace that only you can give me and that you promise me. But the second step is this. We have to look inwardly to ourselves. 
if conflict starts by the desires that are going on in our own hearts and what comes out of us, then naturally the next step is that we ought to look inward, not to the other person. In fact, Jesus said it this way a little later in this same series of teachings in chapter 7. He said this in verse 1, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye, for you have a log on your own. How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now, eye surgery is really delicate, isn't it? I don't, I've never had eye surgery, but the thought of somebody messing around with my eyes just kind of freaks me out a little bit. The thought of somebody messing around with my eyes trying to help me get a little speck out when they've got like this log in their own eye freaks me out. And what Jesus is saying here, and, and we've got to understand this because what Jesus, so often we read this verse and we misuse and abuse this verse in the church. Don't judge me. Well, you've got to understand the lexical range of that word judge. Because you can judge, like judging distance, that's something that ev you're evaluating, right? That's something that you're using to kind of assess the situation. How many of you know if you've got a kid that's about to put their hand in the fire, you better judge the situation quickly and yank that kid's hand back, right? And that's what Jesus isn't saying not to judge, right? He's saying that when you judge, make sure you're judging not from, and this is the other end of the lexical range, that you're not judging in a condemning, I'm going to punish you kind of way. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. If you're going to hurt yourself, I, I wouldn't be a brother in Christ if I didn't come after you. I wouldn't be a brother in Christ who loves you if I didn't come over and say, you're going to hurt yourself if you continue with that behavior or you're going to continue to have that heart or that belief. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you've got to help a person, but you've got to first and foremost make sure that your motives, and this is why purity of heart comes before being a peacemaker, are your motives pure? Are your motives right? Are you just trying to condemn the other person? It starts inside. It starts inwardly after we first receive the peace that God gives us. In fact, Paul actually deals with this in Romans chapter 15. Or, or sorry, not Romans chapter 15, or, uh, 1 Corinthians and, and, and what was happening in the church in Corinth was that there were some people that were actually, uh, there was this whole dispute on eating meat offered to idols. So some of them were on this side of the argument where you shouldn't eat meat that are offered to idols while others are like, man, have you seen inflation? Like the meat offered to idols is totally discounted and we can use the extra money to take care of the poor. Uh-huh, I'm sure you did. Right? And so there's this argument that's going on in the church in Corinth where on one side of the argument, you know, no, no meat to idols. On the other side, yeah, we can eat meat to idols. I'm forgiven and free and that's okay, right? And it's almost like there's this tug of war that's been set up. You ever find yourself mentally in a tug of war with somebody that you're in conflict with? If, you could, if they could just see the truth because you have the truth, right? I mean, the other person's completely wrong. They don't have any truth. And this is what's going on in Corinth, is that there's this argument that's going on. And what Paul says is this. He says, rather than you starting at the point of, I'm right and you're wrong, and I'm going to try and pull you to my version of the truth so that you can understand it, what Paul actually says is, he says, I actually want you to, and he actually addresses this in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, 
I want you to love the other person. You know why? Love believes the best. Love doesn't judge the motive. Love says, I'm gonna choose to believe that they love me and I love them. Can you imagine if both parties started there? Rather than a tug of war, what would happen is we would push one another to help us understand the greater truth that relationship motivated by love is way more important on whether meat gets eaten for idols or not idols. And that's why Paul basically answers the question in Corinthians and says, I'm gonna have a salad. Why? Because relationship matters more than the conflict, than my version of truth. And so we've gotta be those who, who start by receiving the peace of God. We've gotta look inwardly, right? Because relationship motivated by love matters way more. Love is the aim. Love is the ethic of Christianity. Not some whimsy, flimsy version of love. No, no, a robust, I'm willing to lay down my life for another person kind of love. And then the final thing is simply this. We have to put it into practice outwardly. Like, like love, like, like peacemaking is not just a good idea. All that Jesus is teaching us as his followers is not just believe this stuff and then don't do anything about it. No, I'm going to believe it and I'm going to put it into practice. And as I close this morning, I, I want us to just, I'm going to really quickly kind of go through this passage in Philippians chapter 4 because Paul practically addresses how do I put this into practice outwardly? And here's what he says in Philippians chapter 4 verse 4. The first thing, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You guys, maybe some of you grew up in church, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. You guys know that one? Well, that was actually a verse that Paul wrote. And it was like he said, I want you, the starting point, if you're going to practice peacemaking, the starting point is that get your eyes off of the other person, get your eyes off the circumstance, and get your eyes on me. Rejoice in me because in me you've received peace with your heavenly Father. And he doubles down. And again I say rejoice. And then he goes on in the next verse and he says this in verse 5, let your gentleness be known to everyone. In other words, be gentle. Now that's really hard when you're wanting to fight with somebody or even if you're trying to escape because what you have to do in the evolution of conflict is I judge and I've judged your motives and your motives are that you're trying to hurt me. And so I don't know if you've ever done this, but you ever, you ever kind of reasoned out the argument that you're going to have, the, you know, imaginary arguments in your head? You've done it, right? You know, like I, I'm going to say this and I know they're going to say this because they're, this is totally worth the motive is, right? And I'm going to respond by this and this and this and this. And before you know it, you've ratcheted it up in your head to some sort of, like, maybe even physical fight. I was chatting with somebody in between services, and they were like, man, I felt really convicted because I wanted to punch the person really bad, you know? I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a good thing to do, right? But, but the point that I'm trying to make is that what Paul says to the Philippians is that I want you to be gentle. Don't judge, right? Don't imagine how you can hurt that person. Be gentle because your heavenly father has been gentle. A gentle response diffuses the anger according to Proverbs 15.1. The next thing he says in verse 6, pray. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. In other words, don't get stressed out. Don't get anxious. Don't try to work all these things out in your own head. I actually need you to pray. Now, do you notice the direction of all of those things? They're internal and they're, out to, they're, they're towards God. I want you to rejoice. I want you to look at your heart. Now I want you to pray, right? And then he says this, I want you to look for the good. Are you kidding me, God? Like, don't you see what that person has done to me? 
No, 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 I, I, I do. But because you love them and because you're motivated by love, because relationship matters more than being right, even the hurt that might have happened, you're gonna to choose to look for the good. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And then he says this, I want you to put it into practice. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the last thing is simply this. Now you can celebrate the peace of God. Verse nine, and the God of peace will be with you. And so as we close this morning, uh, what, we're, what I want us to focus on, what I want us to think about, because once again, I guarantee you that probably all of us, if not most of us in this room, have some sort of conflict. It might be a low-grade thing. Some of it might be years in the making. But God is the one who's saying to us today, listen, I want you to reflect me. I want you to image me. I want you to resemble me by being a peacemaker. Well, well how do I do that, God? Well, first of all, receive the peace that I give you through my son, Jesus. And some of you are not at peace with God this morning. Some of you have a fractured relationship. Some of you have distance. Some of you are keeping God at arm's length. Some of you are trying to figure out if I just do enough good things, then maybe God will love me and accept me and take me for who I am. And God says, I love and accept you for who you are right now because while you were yet dead in your sin, I sent my son for you. That's how much he loves you. I used to tell my kids, man, how much does dad love you? Why does dad love you? Because you're my son. You're my daughter. And that's how God looks at you. But God is saying, are you going to receive the peace? Are you going to receive the forgiveness that comes from me? And for some of us this morning, that's our first step. For some of us this morning, we got to look inward. And there's some things that even now the Holy Spirit is just kind of putting his finger on your heart and saying, hey, you've had some perspective. You've had some desires that have become demands that have begun to judge somebody else. And maybe you've been punishing somebody else. And the Holy Spirit's just saying, hey, I want you to come to me and I can forgive, I can heal, I can strengthen, I can give you what you need to overcome. For some of us this morning, man, we actually gotta go to the other person and put this thing in practice. God, I'm gonna keep my eyes focused on you. I'm gonna look at my own heart. I'm gonna pray and ask for your help. But then I'm actually gonna go to that other person and humbly, I'm gonna humble myself so that they, maybe, 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 there just might be a restoration of relationship. If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, be at peace. And so as we close this morning, I want you just to close your eyes just for a second. And I want to ask you just practically, uh, and this is what I love about Jesus because he's present and he's always working with us. He's always working in our hearts. He's always kind of going, uh, kind of wanting to work with us. And and I want to ask you this morning, how is it the Lord wants you to respond? Maybe this morning it's the Lord wants you to respond by saying, hey, I need your forgiveness. I need that peace that Jesus comes to give me. He forgives us of our sins. He sets us free. Maybe this morning you need to look inward. Maybe there's someone you need to go to. And so Lord Jesus, as we close out the service this morning, Lord, by just singing this song about seeking you, speaking your name, running to you in the midst of, Lord, whatever might be going on. Lord, I pray 
that Lord, whatever you by your Holy Spirit might be, wherever you might be putting your finger on our heart, Lord, if it's, Lord, I need you to rescue and save me. If it's I've got internal work to do, Lord, if there's something I've got to do in going to a person, Lord, this morning, I pray that every single person in this room wouldn't leave, Lord, believing, what a great message, but Lord, would leave, I'm gonna put this into practice. There's some conversations I need to have with God, number one, with myself, with another person, but I'm gonna put this into practice. And so Jesus, we pray this morning that you would give us the courage to follow you. Lord, the courage to be peacemakers who resemble our Father in heaven. In Jesus' precious name.